0: right well, good to see uh, everyone tonight and what a great uh, theme to sing about, God's love for us. and we'll be uh, studying that very uh, topic in the broadest sense, love. So let's ask the Lord's help with that. Father, we are grateful that you have brought us here tonight. We know that all things happen due to your good providence, and we trust you. We're grateful we have a trustworthy, faithful God. But we need your help tonight, your enabling grace that we might understand your word and so that we might uh, then leave, live lives more pleasing to you so help us with that tonight be our teacher in Christ's name amen we are uh, doing part 2 tonight of our study of biblical love biblical love it certainly is a very important topic it's one that we need to revisit uh, periodically just because it's so much at the center of what our lives are to be about as we know uh, the world does have a view of love. In fact, uh, the topic of love is uh, the subject of a lot of songs. Uh, we're certainly aware of that. Always has been, always uh, will be the subject of a lot of songs. It doesn't matter what genre of music you're talking about, what style, whether it's pop or country or rock or R&B and so forth, many songs are about love, especially romantic love, a couple of songs do come to mind that are just about uh, the need in general for love in the world. I remember hearing these uh, growing up as a student in middle school and high school and so forth. There was a famous song by Dionne Warwick, uh, What the World Needs Now Is... See, you know that, That's love, sweet love, that's the only thing that there's just too little of, yeah. The Beatles, all you need is love, all you need is love, all you need is love, love, love is all you need. Uh, I made a lot of money off those those words. (laughs) It gives me hope. Maybe I could write something. Maybe I could write a song, you know. It's that song and others. I mean, there are good sentiments there, I suppose. We could say that. But the problem is the world, even with uh, all of its songs about love, doesn't know how to accurately define it. They don't know really what they're looking for and what it's supposed to be, and that's because the only source that we can go to to understand what true love is, is Scripture, the Word of God. So that is what we're doing, and one of the most famous passages in Scripture that can help us grasp what love ought to look like is First Corinthians chapter. 13, specifically verses 4 through 7. So we began our evaluation of that passage last week, uh, and we began with an introductory uh, introductory look at the language of love, the various biblical terms for love, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in that study, we did confirm that agape uh, is the principal word for love in the New Testament, Uh, Agape. Uh, which is best uh, captured in our uh, in the synonymous thought of of giving it 's a love that 's the choice of the will we talked about that it 's a love of the unworthy at times it 's a love that 's willing to sacrifice self in order to uh, do something good and meet the needs of the other person it 's a love that inherently includes action that 's all agape love, and therefore it is the best term to describe god 's love of for His people, and our love for Him and our love for one another, the kind of love that we are to be pursuing. Now, it is our passage, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, that captures how this love is expressed related to relationships. In other words, in this list, we find what God expects us to do and what God expects us not to do when it comes to relationships. This lesson in agape love I mentioned to you is presented in a list of verbs. There are 15 of their verbs there. In Greek, they're verbs. It doesn't really come across that way in English. And these verbs give us then these qualities of love that should be the essential marks of every Christian's life. It is the standard we are to pursue in the context of of family, family life, in our marriages, in church life as well. Also, I mentioned that these verbs are all listed in the present tense, and that means it is an ongoing action and an attitude that is to become continuous and habitual by constant, constant repetition. Now, the first evidence of Christian love on this list is one we looked at last week. So, in verse 4, we only got to this one. First of all, love is patient. We noted that one together. And as uh, we discussed, the word patient just means long-suffering, especially in relationships with other people. There's another word about patience in circumstances, but this is about people. So it's the opposite of being short-tempered with people, or as I said, the idea of having a short fuse in interacting with others. Agape love then manifests self-restraint. It's very slow to take offense. It's slow to anger, as some translations put it no matter what the conduct of the other person is. It has never has a desire to retaliate or even the score, but it's always w- willing to take someone's <clears throat> unpleasantness uh, in stride. It never reviles when reviled. And I mentioned 1 Peter 2 verse 22, the example of Christ where when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And of course, what helps us Uh, be motivated and to remember that this is how we are to live is just to remember how much we've been forgiven of by God, just how patient God is with us. Remembering that fact helps us then be forgiving of the offenses that are committed against us. Well, We could say that that's a passive quality. It's the idea of withholding something. You're withholding anger towards someone else. And the second one in line here is the corresponding active counterpart to that. So the second one now is love is kind. Now, again, I said this is a verb. It's actually a verb. It's kinding someone. We don't say it that way in English. But that just means that Paul is pointing out the inherently active character of these qualities. Now, in this case, he uses a term that's found nowhere else in the New Testament in the verb form. It is found in Paul's writings in the noun form. And in his epistles, this noun form of this Greek term will be translated uh, variously like a gentleness. It can be translated uh, sweetness or kindness. So, in the verb form, it's just the active side of that. It, it means a willingness to To be that way, a willingness to be kind, a willingness to be sweet to others. And inherently in this term also is the idea of being useful to someone else, actually doing good to them, being useful. So it's appropriate that this quality follows the first one about being patient with people. Because it's not really love, even though it says love is patient, it's not really love just because it's you're enduring with difficult people. There could be other reasons you're enduring. Someone could endure just out of sheer determination or just because they're also obstinate and so they endure. That's not really love. But to endure being kind throughout the whole transaction, to endure with tenderness, to endure with sweetness of speech, to endure with a desire to be useful, to comfort and help the other person. That is the real long-suffering of love. So the person filled with agape love is always just as an attitude disposed that way to do good, even to those who seek to hurt or those who oppose us. Always helpful, always friendly, always compassionate. And that is seen in both behavior and in word, in word and deed. Now, Interestingly, this Greek term, whether it's the noun or the verb, the the, the origin of it, this Greek term is related to a word. It's a first cousin, so to speak. It's related to a word for wine that has been mellowed with age. So the idea is that with mellowing, with maturity... There ought to be an increasing tendency to be this way, an increasing tendency to be gentle and tender with others. You mature and you're not, not as, black as black and white on many issues. That's a seasoning that happens. We don't change our theology in the gospel, of course, but maturity is evidenced in growing where there's less of an edge to you. Uh, less sharpness when it comes to interaction with others. To be kind means you're willing to sacrifice your own personal interests for the good of the other person. And probably Philippians 2, 3, and 4 articulates that better than any verse, doesn't necessarily use the word, but the idea is there, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. That captures the spirit behind this, a desire to be tender and, and, and compassionate and helpful to others, sweet and kind. And it doesn't, just, it doesn't just mean doing this in the large things that happen in life. It, it more than likely is going to be more often the, the performing of just little acts of thoughtfulness, little acts of gentleness along the way. And sadly, we, we don't say the words, the sweet words and the gentle words to people, words of kindness about someone until they die. I found this great quote by J.R. Miller. He says, do not keep the alabaster boxes of your affection sealed and laid away until your friends are dead. Fill their days with tenderness. Speak your words of commendation while their ears can, can hear them. And it doesn't matter whether the kindness is recognized or appreciated by the other person. Just look at the example of Jesus. He was kind. He was gentle. Even though people returned evil to Him, He didn't do good to others and then become very cold and bitter when it wasn't reciprocated or appreciated. People tend to do that, but not Jesus. It helps to think about how even these first two character qualities are manifested by God Toward people, both patience and kindness are two sides of his own attitude toward people. Romans two verse four mentions both of them, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? so on one hand, we see in God this this patience this loving forbearance, you could call it. It's demonstrated by His holding back His wrath toward human rebellion. He's still doing that in many ways. But on the other hand, His kindness is found in just the thousands of expressions of His grace and His mercy every day. Well, these are two positive qualities, we could say. Love is patient. Love is kind. But the passage goes on now to to tell what we must not do and be. In full disclosure, these proofs of love, we could call them, are are even more clearly showing how agape is something different than what's natural to us. Agape love is is not found in the natural inclination of a fallen man. Uh, The natural bent is towards self, and the rest of the list certainly makes that evident. The third one is this, love is not jealous. It's not jealous. The Greek term is zelao. I only say it and give it to you because it is where we get our word zeal from that. You can see the similarity there. It comes from a word that means to boil, to seethe, to be hot. So this speaks of some very strong emotions, strong passions, but it can be either good or bad, this same word. This emotion can have a, a positive connotation. You can see it in the sense of, of guarding one's honor, and it says that about God, that God is a jealous God, and Exodus even says that his name is jealous. He's jealous in the sense that he commands that people worship only him. That That's a guard of his own honor, and so that's a positive connotation of this. It's used in a positive sense later on, in, uh, earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31 where he talks about spiritually spiritual gifts and he says earnestly desire that's the same word earnestly be zealous about be, be jealous about exercising the, the greater gifts desire that in the body the greater gifts of serving and teaching and so forth but in our verse in this current sense in verse four of chapter 13 it's used in the negative sense, not the positive here Paul is talking about a passion. That's motivated by self. So, when we think of jealousy in that sense, we think of the word envy, and it's a strong emotion. It's burning with envy, it's seething with envy and jealousy. And that's the most common usage of this Greek term. So, the point is in a list like this that agape love, is like that, agape love actually delights in someone else being honored. It delights in someone else being esteemed. Practically speaking, love rejoices over the blessings of other people. Whether they're spiritual blessings or material blessing, there's no envy there. There's a joy over the blessings that someone else is enjoying. That's one application. There's another application of this. Love is not envious of recognition. It's not envious of positions not envious of people's honor and favor. In other words, it's a self-focused desire that's, that's so concerned about, about reputation. That's different than testimony. A self-focused desire wants a certain reputation, and so people of the world are like that. They want that, and so they climb up the proverbial ladder, you know, and uh, pushing down other people so they can climb up ahead of someone else because they want the prominent position, They're desirous of that. They're envious of that. They're jealous of the attention of others and the attaboys and so forth. And then you see the burning with envy when that prominent position and that attention goes to somebody else. Then they grumble. They're not joyous over the success of others. They grumble over the success of others. Their joy only comes when the other person experiences failure in some way. You know, misfortune overtakes finally that other person. Now they're joyous. That's an absence of agape love. Agape love seeks the opposite of that. Agape love wants to serve other people. Another quote, this one by George Matheson, Christian love is the only kind of love in which there's no rivalry, no jealousy. The glory of natural love is, is its monopoly, but the glory of Christian love, agape, is its refusal of monopoly. Bottom line line is agape love is not jealous, envious in any form. There's a fourth one in the list. Love does not brag. Love does not brag. It's interesting that this follows jealousy because a self-focused person can be very envious and jealous of what others have their positions, their their material possessions, their money. And in the very next breath, that same person that doesn't have agape love in their heart can start boasting of their own abilities and their own possessions as though what they had was vastly superior to other people. The point in this list is agape doesn't do either one. Now, this Greek term is not found anywhere else in the Bible. It's from a noun that means a braggart or maybe in antiquated language, a windbag. So the verb means then to behave that way, to behave as a braggart, to behave as a windbag. It's the person that in their communication embellishes everything they say in order to gain attention and recognition. They're, They're marked by ego, egotism. A braggart is filled with pride, pride in himself, pride in accomplishments wants to impress others, but not agape love doesn't want to do that, has no desire to impress anybody. Agape love has no desire to appear superior to anyone else. In communication, agape love never overestimates or embellishes its own abilities and achievements. Instead of being marked by conceit or what we might even call ostentation, showing off, agape love is marked by by self-effacement love readily admits what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10. Agape love lives with this mindset that I'm only, I am what I am just by the grace of God. Now, the cure for this is then the opposite, and that's humility, but as well, it's the right kind of boasting. So, there are verses that tell us what we ought to brag about. Another way you could say what we ought to put our boast in Psalm 34, verse 2, my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. Psalm 44, verse 8, in God we've boasted all day long. 1 Corinthians 1, let him who boasts, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. And so it's talking about boasting in things that are truly great. There's nothing truly great about us to, to boast and brag about. But God is great, so we boast in the greatness of God. We boast in the, the, the providential, the sovereign, providential actions and dealings of God. We, we boast in the plan of redemption and, and our salvation in Christ and the work that he did on the cross. And I think Paul's a great example of that. He talks about glorying in the cross, and he, he boasted in the Lord. And even when he talked about tribulation and his infirmities, he was boasting in the sovereignty of God in those situations. Most bragging is obvious. It's very bold, but there's a subtle kind of bragging we have to be on guard against because it's not agape love, and that's more the exaggeration of things. Exaggeration is embellishing things to present ourselves in the best light possible. Again, Jesus just didn't go about His life interested in gaining recognition. He he left His reputation. He left all the results completely in the hands of God, as I said in 1 Peter 2, 22 and 23, really, that He didn't revile when reviled. He entrusted Himself to God, the one who judges righteously. There was no reason to, to boast and brag or exaggerate. He's the epitome of everything in this list. As I said last time, you can put Jesus' name in this. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not boast and so forth. And there's a fifth one in the list now. These are all so related. The the next one's so clearly related. Love is not arrogant. It's not arrogant. To be arrogant or full of pride is to be full of self-satisfaction. Now, the term itself means to, in a verb form, means to blow up. Okay? I think you want to change that next slide here, I think. Love is not arrogant somewhere in there. Did I leave it out completely? No, I just didn't put the right term on it. In your mind, cross out that word brag and type in the word arrogant. Now it's fixed. Full of self-satisfaction. To inflate something, okay? That's the, the idea behind the word, it's in a particular voice in Greek, the middle voice, that always points to the, the action of the subject, of, of entering into the action willingly. That's the idea of middle voice. So, it's, it's to blow oneself up or to puff oneself up. So, behind this is what all the boastful bragging uh, that's going on. It's this, it's arrogance that we just talked about. It's a conceit over an overestimation of one's own ab- abilities and importance and achievements. And all of this is so clear against the teaching of Scripture. I reference Proverbs 6 from time to time where it has that list of seven things the Lord hates. And those seven things that are in there that are an abomination to Him, they're so important. And the first one on the list has to do with arrogance and pride because He says He hates haughty eyes. That's the look of arrogance. Paul gave us great advice in Romans 12, 3, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. He goes on to say, but think wisely. Think with sound judgment. Now, sometimes we talk about somebody's boasting as empty boasting, but let's get back and look at that. There is no other kind of boasting. All boasting is empty boasting. So, what's the cure? Same thing as I said about bragging, it's humility. Matthew 23 verse 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. But whoever humbles himself, that's God's way, will be exalted. James 4, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, He will exalt you. So again, this is all a contrast agape love is. Agape love is humble, so therefore agape love is in contrast to arrogance. The humble person is the one who desires to manifest agape love. Number six, love does not act unbecomingly unbecomingly this greek term is really an odd one askemonai it doesn't sound like anything <laughs> except in the middle part it, askemonai is where we get our word scheme from about shape the shape of something that you're doing so in this term is the idea then on the negative side of being misshapen or ugly to be shameful, to be base and crude and rude. It conveys the idea of rudeness, ill manners, insulting conduct, indecent behavior, crude behavior. This is really interesting. Paul's not just concerned with the character alone, but he's concerned with how all this ends up getting expressed outwardly. In a sense, with this word, he's discussing what we would call etiquette. Christian etiquette, agape love, cares about that. The Christian cares about how they, they come across to people. I was thinking about this, and I just began to spill out on my own paper here. This is what I said to myself. Oh, how I wish those in the political arena who profess to be Christians understood this. Etiquette a lack of rudeness. It's as if biblical principles are just thrown out when you get to that world. It's okay in the political arena to profess Christ and to just throw out conduct and etiquette. But according to Scripture, what Scripture says applies to every area of life, every arena. So, no matter the context, the this verse rules out crass behavior. It rules out insulting behavior. It rules out rudeness. All that comes from just not being sensitive to other people and caring about how other people feel and even even being sensitive to what other people believe. You could say that agape love has its antennas up, its radars up. It's it cares about avoiding ever being uncouth is an old word. It doesn't want to be uncivilized, bad manner. It doesn't want to be impolite. It doesn't want to be crude, not only in behavior but in comments. We see a failing of this in the political arena even by those who claim to be Christians. It's very much in the entertainment industry, isn't it, crassness, you can read it even in the rating comments of movies, even the ones that are that are directed toward kids. This will be a common comment, whether it's PG or PG-13 or whatever it will say. One of the comments is crass humor. Oh, then that's okay. Not according to Scripture. Usually it refers to so-called bathroom humor. I got to tell you, I was raised in a home that was appalled at that kind of humor. I'm appalled at Now, how many Christian families just accept it as being normal, even promote it? We did not tolerate this kind of humor in our family with our children, much less did we ever seek to promote it. I've heard dads say, well, it's a boy thing. No, it's not. It's a crude thing. It's a crass thing. It's a rude thing because it means there's an absence of agape love. One area of Life where it certainly needs to be applied is in the things we joke about. Scripture comments on that. We're not to be characterized by crassness there, Ephesians 5, 4. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting. That goes back to this word, love does not act unbecomingly. You know, the positive side of that is to be becoming, fit, appropriate, fitting, fitting. And so Ephesians 5 says it's it's not fitting for Christians to be this way. This even applies to the things that people say that may be true, but they don't care how they say it. Just be blunt and without any tact at all. I mean, as long as we're speaking the truth, that's all that matters, right? Not really. Paul's making the point that the manner of our speech and our actions also make a difference. Love does not act unbecomingly, and you could say love does not speak unbecomingly. Sometimes to behave becomingly means even keeping silent at times. Sometimes we just talk too much. There's a lack of tact there. We express our opinions at the wrong time to the wrong people without thought about propriety and tact. We do need to think more about all this. That would have a huge effect on our words if we would just think about it, put ourselves in the other person's place and so forth, and really think about what might hurt what 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 might what sin might be avoided if we thought ahead of time There's a time to speak the truth don't get me wrong, but Paul even talks about speaking the gospel truth in ephesians fourteen chapter four verse fifteen is speaking it in love. talking about decent behavior, decent behavior that's concerned about words, decent behavior that's concerned about attitude. Even modesty in dress fits here because modesty is becoming to a Christian. Immodest appearance is unbecoming. Again, it's an absence of love for other people Because love ends up being marked by courtesy, it's marked by tact, it's marked by grace, it's marked by winsomeness, it's marked by consideration of others. Oh, how easy it is to fail in this and to be unbecoming. Number seven, love does not seek its own. It doesn't seek its own. There's other ways you can translate this. Love does not insist on its own way. Love never seeks its own advantage. Love does not claim its its rights and so forth. And obviously, at the at the bottom of all that, again, is a self-focus. It's selfishness. That's what lies at the root of all evil in the world. It, it's what's at the at the base and deterioration of relationship between nations. It's at the root of all evil in families and churches and between individuals. Selfishness. But our culture promotes it. It loves selfishness, even in the way it, it, it's. subtle ways, it's teaching children the importance of, of finding yourself. As if that's the highest good that a person could ever reach. That's why in our world we see the worship of self everywhere. There's more worship of self than any other object in the world. It's all the opposite of agape love. Agape love doesn't believe that finding yourself is the highest good. It's not enamored with self, self self-gain, self-worth, and so forth. It seeks the good of other people. It seeks the good of the neighbor, even enemies. Once again, Philippians 2 just fits here. It's a a far-reaching verse about doing nothing out of empty conceit, but actually esteeming others is more important than self. There are some personal interests we have to look after, but it says don't merely look out for your own personal interests. That's the idea but for the interest of others as well. That's the biblical model. not seeking what satisfies self, what promotes self. It's not seeking what makes me feel good about myself. The model is agape love, which is seeking the good for others. Well, Christ modeled this for us. He didn't seek His own. He wasn't known for that, he didn't seek His own comfort. He was concerned about others who needed Him. He didn't seek His own will, but He was always wanting the Father's will. He didn't seek His own advancement. He was here on a mission. Matthew 20, verse 28, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many, that's, that's the model. So we do have to examine ourselves on, these, uh, on this, li- this list based upon this list and all these qualities, we have to examine the activities we're involved in. We have to examine the choices that we make day by day, whether we we have this default setting and a, and a habit of picking and choosing what we do and what we get involved in just, just based on what will meet our own personal needs and serve our own personal needs the best. Love does not seek its own. By the way, that includes the not seeking to be more self-confident. That's really more of a, of a concept from the world, to grow in self-confidence. And I, I know what we mean by that. But it's not self-confidence that we actually need in order to face all the challenges of life. We need the confidence that Scripture speaks about in verses like four, Proverbs 14, verse 26. This is what we want our children to grow in, in the fear of the Lord. There's strong confidence his children will have refuge. For the Lord will be your confidence and keep your foot from being caught. Paul says, in such confidence we have through Christ toward God, that's the kind of confidence we need. It's not seeking our own sort of strength and self-confidence even, but it's the, the confidence that we found in, in the Lord, that we trust Him no matter what happens. Number eight, love is not provoked. It's not provoked. Let me talk about anger just for a moment. We have to search our hearts to figure out what kind of anger we have sometimes because there are two different kinds. Ephesians 4, verse 26 says, to be angry, yet don't sin. So anger can be wrong, sinfully motivated, and selfishly handled, or it can be right, it can be properly motivated. And we see both examples of both kinds of anger in Scripture. Christ was angry, God was angry. Christ had indignation. Anytime God the Father was dishonored, there was righteous indignation, we call it. Anytime people distorted God's Word and they added to it and then ended up promoting hypocrisy and injustice, His righteous indignation was was provoked and excited. Any expressions of a lack of integrity in religious life Inhumanity of man to man, and so forth. It's all righteous indignation, righteous anger. In Christ, but it was never any personal offense or injury that prom- prompted this. It wasn't personal offense to himself that prompted his anger. As I said in First Peter two, when he was reviled, he he didn't revile back in return. He got exercised though when God's honor was being defamed, and so forth. So there is a righteous anger, sadly. Most anger that humans have is not that kind. We could use a little more of that, but we don't have that as a default setting. Sinful anger is always connected to personal disappointment in some way, or disappointment, if you don't want to put a T on the end of it. Personal ambition that gets resisted and gets defeated. Somebody messes it up and we're angry. Our hopes are broken. Sinful anger is connected to being irritated. Our our traditions, our perspectives, our own preferences are being violated and disagreed with. Sinful anger is disillusionment in other people. That develops into resentment. There's a Healthy, unhealthy self-consciousness where people are, are angry and upset because I think other people are talking about me. I, 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 think, I think she's talking about me. I, I, I know he meant something by what he said. There's something going on there that, that anger, that indignation is excited, but it's sinful. So we do have to examine our anger. But like I said in Ephesians 4.26, be angry but don't let sin enter into your anger. There is an anger, there is a passion is the idea behind that word. There is an energy, a passion that motivates people to do what is right and to resolve what is wrong. There's a a passion that motivates and moves us to change. We should get angry at the things that God gets angry at, injustice and hypocrisy and greed, but, but the bottom line is this, anger is a is a vice for most people. It could be a virtue or a vice, you see, according to the object against which it's directed and the motivation behind it. If it, 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 It's vice, we would call it, if it's the anger that's just prompted by personal resentment and personal hurt. It's virtue when it's aimed at the things that God gets angry at. So again, if we're honest, we'll admit sorrowfully that most of our anger is on the sinful side. It's because of personal insult. It's because of frustration that our personal desires are not being fulfilled. We are provoked is what this quality says. Love is not provoked. But we're provoked in a negative way. So back to our verse, the the Greek word itself for provoked occurs uh, in Acts 17 verse 16. There it says that Paul's spirit was stirred up that's the sort of the thought of the word when he looked at all the idols that were in Athens, you know. That's a good sense. It's used in a good sense in Hebrews 10, 24. We should provoke one another. I mean, don't stop the verse right there. Some people would hear that and go, oh, I, love, I love that verse. That's my, that's my life verse. It's provoking my, my wife, you know. No, there's more to it. <laughs> Let's provoke one another, stir up one another to love and good deeds, good works. So back to our text, 1 Corinthians 13, it's obviously used in the negative sense. Agape love is not provoked. It's not roused up, stirred up to resentment. It's not stirred up to a bad temper, that sinful kind of irritation and anger. I mean, it it can be at an extreme form where it flies into rage, but it can be in this lesser form of just being frustrated and irritated. More bluntly, we have a word for that. He's so touchy. Agape love is not touchy. A self-centered person is touchy. A selfish person looks out for himself and his own advancement or her advancement, and so he or she gets touchy when their cause and interests are interfered with. There's an example of this irritation and provoked to anger and resentment in the parable of the the world calls it the prodigal son, but if you want to be accurate about it, it's the parable of the loving father with the two sons, okay? It's all of that. The prodigal son is just one character. But the elder brother, the other brother in this story is important. In fact, in some ways he's the most important because Jesus was telling this parable to the Pharisees. And when they were hearing the parable, they're identifying with the older brother, They're hearing the parable and thinking, that older brother, he's the good one. We like him. We're like him. He was lost too. But in that older brother, what happened when the younger brother came back and returned? He came in from the fields and he found his wayward younger brother had returned home only to be welcomed by the father with joy, Luke 15 says. It says in Luke 15, 28, that he was angry. He wouldn't go in the house. Provoked. Provoked to bitterness and resentment. That's what fills the heart when there's no agape love. That's what fills the heart of someone who's concerned only about their own rights. Jonah was like that. He was angry over the fact that God was forgiving people, blessing others that he considered to be undeserving, that Ninevites. Again, agape love is not like that. It's not that agape love is blind to faults. It's not blind to sin. Agape love is not blind to abuse. It's not blind to the moral faults of other people. In fact, it's willing to address it for the good of the person and for good of others. But still, it's not personally provoked and even when it recognizes the fault in the other person, there still is this hope in the, in the agape love-filled person, the hope of transformation of that offender. They're not going to be like Jonah. They want the offender to change. Agape love loves to think about what people could be through Christ but when people are just concerned about their own pursuits and their own opinions, they get touchy, they're easily provoked, and so we walk on eggshells, we say, because that person's touchy if someone interferes with them, and their self-love is wounded in some way. I mean, none of us are exempt from being hurt by others, we're not exempt from irritation that can be caused by others and and so forth. We're not exempt from injustices. I mean, life's full of injustices and cruelties that might even be committed against us. Most are small. Sometimes there's a large wrong that can be committed against us, has to be addressed, has to be dealt with, possibly even severely. But still, love is not soured by that, it's not easily provoked. It's not touchy. I said earlier it has a long fuse. You could add this thought. It has a, a very short memory about those kind of irritations. i tell you something else about people who are touchy and easily provoked. They do major on trivial, trivial things. They, they focus on trivialities, offenses that are not big, offenses that ought to be overlooked, but they're ready to take offense. They're ready to be provoked at the slightest sort of thing, and so they nourish their grudge and they brood over the wrong that's been committed against them. Not a very forgiving kind of person when there's no agape love. But go back to anger. Righteous indignation is not like that. It's not provoked by something trivial. Righteous indignation is not stirred up except by some great and worthy cause, like the honor that God deserves and so forth. Maybe I just summarize it. Touchiness thrives on trivialities. That's why we end up with husbands who are harsh toward their wives or growl at their wives. That's why we have wives who harshly scold their husbands. This is why parents bark at their children. This is why children snap back at their parents. It's an absence of agape love because love is, when there's no agape love, there's touchiness. So agape love is the opposite of touchiness. Love will endure slights and insults and so forth. It's never exasperated. Well, all of this, will end there as far as the list. We'll pick up with it next week. There's only so much conviction we can handle. Always remember, I've been living with this for several days, okay? I'm pretty beat up. I couldn't help but think of a summary thought. All of this, then, re- relates to the biblical concept of denying self. And just think how important that is in our Christian faith because the beginning of our journey with Christ starts with self-denial. I mean, Jesus Himself has a summary statement of what it means to be a Christian. Luke 9 verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I mean, there's a there's a big dose of that that happens at the beginning of our following of Christ because we realize He's God and we're not. And so we, we let go of serving self and loving self and sin in the world I mean, as best as we can understand it at that moment. There's a lot more to learn about it. People sort of present the lordship of Christ sometimes as if the, the break with all of that is so dramatic that the person never sins anymore, or never has a battle with the flesh anymore. That's not really true. The work of regeneration creates in a person's heart the recognition that God is God, He's the Lord, and the person is not, and there is a a need to uh, follow and obey Him. But there's a lot of things to learn about that. It's a life of learning it. I've seen many Christians come to true salvation, and over the first six months, there's a lot of things that they didn't know they had to, to say no to, that they were still imbibing and living with and living in sinful things. But as the Word of God began to teach them, they, they realized, well, this is what it means to follow Christ, to deny self. I take up my cross daily and follow Him. I'm starting to learn what that means. It's a life of that. So, yes, all of this relates to how we even begin our life,